Hey everyone, we taped this podcast with Gene Munster on Thursday afternoon. Went through a lot of different stuff, including the housing market, uh, different stocks. We talked a little about Africa and really moonshots. And so it's a uh, different kind of podcast. I think you'll like it. We've just kicked off season three, which is really cool. Um, we got some interesting characters lined up for you all. And hopefully um, we can keep bringing you know, a lot of value and whatnot to you. Uh, in addition, go ahead, check out Gene um, at Loop Ventures. Um, you can go to loopventures.com, find out more about that. And also the Loop ETF, if you're interested in innovation uh, and those types of tech stocks, you're going to hear a little bit more about that in this podcast. Um, also want to thank our sponsor, uh, American Express. Um, you can't do business without them. Without further ado, Gene Munster. Uh, so we're here on a Thursday afternoon, everyone. I have the luxury of bringing on the great Gene Munster. We're here for the sequel. You all love the first episode, and so um, we're bringing another one to you. We're going to talk about everything, you know, from the housing market that's on fire to uh, you know some stocks and also some questions that you all had. So without further ado, Gene, thanks uh, for coming back on here. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you. Awesome, man. Awesome. So just, just, I want to get your take here at the very beginning. Um, we've seen the stock market really for tech stocks in particular, because I know your loop ventures is very big into, um, technology sector and we've seen the market here kind of rebound a little bit, but there was a big tech sell off initially, and that's mostly due to inflation concerns. What what kind of has been your take as you've seen these markets really fluctuate over the last you know couple months here? You've seen a lot of these high tech stocks come down. Um, personally, I've been buying, and a lot of other people you know think it's a good entry point. But what have you um, seen here, and what's your take on that? What we think about it is there's kind of two classes of tech stocks. There are those that are would say kind of the mega cap, the more foundation, the fabric of how we live, breathe, and work and play. Those have done either relatively well, if you look at Google and Facebook and kind of been flattish for Amazon and Apple. Netflix has pulled back a little bit here, just kind of rounding out Fang. It's been down about 5% year to date. And so uh, what that tells us is even with rising interest rates fears, which really started kind of end of January, that those have generally held together, done okay. And that's one group, the kind of we'll call them foundational tech. And then there's the next group uh, we would put in the category of uh, the emerging class, kind of the next fang potentially. And those are companies like Unity and Snowflake and Zillow, Opendoor, Carvana. Uh, these are companies, there's a long list of SPACs that are in that group too. Those have been more negatively impacted here. And some of those are down 15 to 35% from their highs. And I would say this is the way we think about this is that there's uh, more opportunity and that bucket that has pulled back, that new class of leadership that has had some bigger pullbacks. But a pullback by definition is not a buying point. And I think what we, uh, what it really comes down to is really picking the right investments within the group that has pulled back. And so we talk a little bit about our philosophy of investing in transformative tech, but that's the, 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 the kind of the general overview. If I would sum it up, it's uh, this, I think, general pullback that you are correct has been the catalyst was concerns about inflation. 
And I think that that pullback has created some opportunities. You, you talk about those secondary type thing names when you bring up like Carvana and you bring up Zillow and whatnot. Um, we've seen, you know, with inflation prices rise and there are very few cars available to buy now. And the housing market, people are throwing Same thing. Yeah, people are throwing twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars above list price and they can't get, you know, a house still. And mm-hmm. so I mean those the market's great and you know, Zillow and those types of companies have benefited. But doesn't that kind of worry you a little bit? Because to me personally, just from a, like an investment thesis, I feel like it would be a little, you know, counterintuitive to want to buy something if it's, you know, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars above what a list price is. So I feel like that does pose a big threat to markets, the inflation Would concern. Ag- uh, agree. I think there's uh, kind of two phases to that. One is, how is this going to play out over the near term? And and ultimately, an embedded question that is, does it concern me? I'll start there. Is it is concerning what's happened with housing and uh, used car prices. And I think part of it is just this inflation play. I think there's also a shift in terms of how people are living. This great reshuffling has put greater emphasis on single family homes. People are moving out of more dense urban areas and that's creating some buying pressure. And in, uh, I mean, to put it in perspective, there's about 120 million households in the US. Any given year, there's about five to seven million homes that are sold a year. And so if you tighten up inventory by a little bit and you increase the demand at the same time, it can create these uh, spikes in pricing. The used car market is slightly different. Some of that's being driven by inflation. Some of it's been driven by component shortages that have made it a little bit more difficult to get cars. And so I think the combination, the simple takeaway is that near term, it probably continues to go higher. I think that uh, that when I talk about near term, I talk about, I think, three to three months to maybe a year. But I think that eventually, there is supply demand and equilibrium. These markets, I've always found a way to kind of right size, and we have had some pretty big spikes. Now, I would compare the spikes that we have had in the housing market and in the used car market. That's kind of one level of a spike. You know, we're seeing growth in pricing in those markets uh, uh, 15% on homes and almost 30% on used car pricing uh, year over year. But you compare that to some of the commodity pricing. And whether it's copper, obviously a lot's been talked about lumber. Uh, Lumber's uh, pulled back recently, but that's still kind of up almost 3x what it was a year ago. So it's almost like there's a whole nother class of concern, I would say. And I would put some of the commodities in that category. The commodities, by I think definition, there is they tend to reach supply demand equilibrium more quickly than what we'll probably see in the housing market, for example. And yes, it's uh, it's easier uh, said than done in like increasing supply of copper or lumber, but the market's a forward thinker. And if the market starts to anticipating more, for example, logging mills coming online, I think that there, you'll continue to see some decreases there. So said a slightly different way, and it wasn't the kind of the, the center of your question, but I just wanted to draw uh, some parallel or some uh, contrast between the spikes we've seen in the housing market and some of the commodities markets. I think that they probably will pull back uh, maybe more quick, or they will pull back uh, more quickly. In total, I would just say this, if, you know, those three, I think 
Zillow and Open Door are rift on what's going on in the housing market. We can talk about those. I see them as kind of playing a little bit of a different uh, yeah. theme. But in general, I would uh, be pretty cautious about at least going long any of these uh, commodities at where they're at today or kind of just uh, I'd be pretty cautious if I was putting a bid on a home, for example. T- touching on Zillow and Open Door, those are really like the two plays where you're betting on the housing market and the digitalization of that you had to really like choose one or the other because both are very popular. Um, Open door recently IPO'd. What, which one would you choose? Because Zillow, I feel like is when someone wants to go look at a house, they always go first pull up Zillow to see what, what all is available. Right. And so I feel like between those two and then also Redfin is available. Now you have compass that is pretty popular. So like, but between Zillow and open door specifically, um, if you had to choose and, you know, everything was dependent on that, which one would you pick? Uh, let me start the answer to your question with another question. And if you could give me a, a time frame, because I have different answers, uh, would you, is the question over the next year, who I think is a better, uh, kind of going to have a better opportunity or beyond a year? I would say let's go three to five years. Cause I feel like that's kind of going into the potential space also, which is another topic I want to touch on after. So as maybe a reminder, uh, you know, this is not investment advice. This is my opinion just on how things are going to play out. And I think that Zillow is longer term in a better position. I think that uh, today, uh, really, they're getting their launch handed to them by Opendoor just in terms of the pace of iBind. This is something that, um, you know, Opendoor has had some recent commentary, commentary yesterday about the number of transactions that they've had. It basically implies that they're, running a clip about 2x faster. And in the previous quarter, in the March quarter, it was about uh, 50% faster. And so uh, this is in terms of buying and selling homes, the iBind theme, what I think is the most important metric related to the two companies. And so near term, uh, I think that Open Door has room to really impress investors and be seen as uh, a legitimate uh, contender to be a major company long term. Uh, the reason why I think that Zill's uh, better uh, kind of has a better opportunity long-term, as you, you said, it is the ownership at top of the funnel. It's quite remarkable is that they are basically in the U S they have about a hundred and excuse me, uh, 220 million monthly active users. It's incredible. Yeah. The, and you, you got to figure some people are not, uh, are, you know, if you're probably under 11 years old, you probably don't really care about price of homes. <laughs> Hopefully you don't. And, uh, you know, there are probably some people who are at an age much higher that uh, they don't care about homes either. So if you just look at the addressable market, it's like you said, uh, it's incredible. So uh, what that means is that really that ownership of top of the funnel is is basically an invitation that, that Zillow has to really kind of evolve their offering from what is today kind of give you discovery and a little bit of Zestimate in there too. The Zestimate has some challenges. Uh, we can talk about how they're trying to improve that. Um, but I think that ultimately their ability long-term to take top of the funnel and eventually build a brand around iBind, I'll just kind of put one other metric on it, is that uh, Zillow talked about adding uh, about 2,000 people this year in 2021 related to the iBind opportunity that will be about double the total number of employees for open. And so, I mean, if, if you just kind of uh, take your 
uh, maybe zoom back a little bit and not think as much about the June quarter, the September quarter and what the iBuy numbers are, you can build a, a case that over that three to five year period that you talked about, that Zillow is probably in a, a better position. Loop is an investor in both uh, Zillow and Opendoor. It's not investment advice here, but we are investors in both of them. That's that's crazy to think they're addressable market. They already have 220 million active users. As you said, some of them could be you know 12 year olds, 14 year olds, and then you have all the way up to people that are you know buying you know really expensive properties. But it shows that once those individuals that are able to buy houses, Zillow will be the top of mind, kind of like how Netflix and how Amazon really has done it. And you look at like social media numbers, in essence, Zillow is almost like a social platform in that they draw pretty similar numbers to some of these social platforms. Yeah, so that's exactly right. It, it is, uh, you know, it's in some aspects, it's a form of entertainment. It's a big part of People's net worth is their home price. They're curious in how it's trending when things are going up. People are more engaged. So it kind of describes why, uh, this is getting back to our earlier conversation about housing prices, why some of those numbers will probably are, are peaking right now. Uh, but it, it doesn't change what I think is what we would describe as the underlying truth to both Zillow and Open Door, which is the importance of iBind. As we have surveyed, and these tend to be surveys of around 200 people in the US, it's statistically relevant sample sizes, that if you're under the age of 35, you really wanna buy and sell your home uh, online. You don't really want to work through kind of the traditional um, mechanics of getting an agent, kind of working through the process of that. Usually before you buy a house, almost always, people actually wanna walk through it. That doesn't change with iBind, but what does change is uh, really transparency in the market. This is what's really important is that the, the fundamental question around buying and selling homes is what is the house worth? And there's so many unique uh, aspects to it. It's been always an art. But if there can be more science around that, and I think this is what Zillow's news was this week, using a neural network to help improve the Zestimate. But this is like a wheelhouse opportunity for the Zestimate to take, really to use artificial intelligence. And I'm a believer that that uh, that theme will ultimately uh, allow pricing transparency. I think a machine ultimately should be able to price a home. And that really takes a lot of the emotion out of buying and selling a home and really opens up the addressable market uh, for people really just to trust uh, that they can uh, really show their home, uh, the price of their home to many more people and have some confidence in what that price is. So I think there's a massive uh, untapped market. It's much bigger than just the brokerage fee. And that's the iBuying theme. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm a believer that this is just simply where it's going. And, and this is going back to your previous question of like timeline. You said before a year and then maybe longer than that. When you're talking about iBuying and Zestimate, like I still know, you know, most people still go to people's, properties when there's that for sale sign up, they go to open houses, they tour the house and whatnot. How long are we talking in terms of when iBuying really takes center stage here? Because I feel like now iBuying is probably at the center of the thesis for both of these platforms. Right. Some of the success is getting priced in. It's still early. Less than 1% of homes last year were bought or sold online. And so it's still nascent. It's kind of a similar type of um, uh, a uh, usage rate as where uh, EVs were in the U.S. four years ago. It's about 3% today. It was 1% four years ago. And so that's kind of where we're at. And uh, it definitely needs to happen. When is that going to happen to your question? 
is I think we're probably in, in 10 years from now, we'll probably have 10% or so of homes bought or sold online. It's going to increase at a very slow pace, but kind of go up. Uh, interestingly, that's the same pace that e-commerce went up as a percentage of total sales in the U.S. over the past decade. I had that accelerating piece last year, but for the most part, it's been just kind of the steady 1% gain. So we generally think that iBind is going to take kind of the, that same trend and just kind of uh, circle back too and say that I think that um, people will still want to walk around a home and uh, and and tour it before they buy it. But I think the discovery of the home, finding that it's available, the price discovery on it, the negotiation piece, uh, and the timing of when the transaction yeah. happens. And I think that is what really is the power of iBind. And I think that it is an undeniable benefit for the consumer. I think, you know, going to that iBind point and going back to kind of like how some of these companies are drawing almost like social platform numbers, would it shock you at all to see potentially like an acquisition in this market? Because I feel like if I'm Facebook or if I'm one of these massive you know, conglomerates that are worth almost a trillion dollars or whatnot, or an Amazon even, I feel like you can see the writing on the wall where it's all coming. And mm -hmm. it's like a perfect opportunity to acquire one of these types of companies. I feel like to me, that would be the move that kind of changes the whole game in terms of it might speed up the process in that it might not be 10 years. Agree. And, you know, the, obviously the most obvious one, you mentioned it, Amazon, for a lot of reasons, it, uh, her commerce, this would we put uh, iBind, home iBind in the category that we refer to as complicated commerce. But that's something that historically Amazon has shied away from. But that's not to say they wouldn't go there. They obviously have gone there with Whole Foods, which is a very different type of business than what they were operating before. And so I think that when you think about just, you know, the big tech giants who could have a play here, uh, Amazon just lines up. It's, uh, it, it's, it's so obvious that they should do it. The fact that it hasn't happened yet makes me think that it will never happen because it probably should have happened two, three years ago. And uh, then outside of that, if you think about the other big tech companies, I see it as uh, less likely of a fit. Um, and just kind of one more thought just on the competition yeah. side. And there's probably, we've identified about eight companies that are kind of uh, jockeying for this uh, iBuying space. And you'll probably see some form of consolidation within those over in, in the next few years. That's, iBuying is going to be fascinating. And it's something that Can't has, wait. it's something that I don't think the average person has noticed, totally. which it's very similar to like how Tesla you would only see Teslas in California a few years ago. And now you drive down, you know, streets in Ohio or whatnot, and you see Teslas all over the place. Mm -hmm. So same I, deal. Yeah, same deal. I'm, I'm with you. And you, know, you think about these big changes. I think the EV is a, a great example. I think what Amazon did with logistics is another example. It's kind of hard to get our head around this, but 10 years ago when uh, we were talking about Amazon and thinking about them getting more into logistics and spending on fulfillment centers and, you know, this tech company that's spending on real estate and fulfillment centers and buying trucks and potentially hiring drivers and people in a warehouse. It just yeah. felt like they were kind of losing their focus. And I think at the end of the day, Amazon was right, is that you got to uh, make investments in things that are a little bit outside of just what a core tech company is to really uh, tap into a massive addressable market. And I think the iBuying space and the EV space are very similar. In the case of Zillow or Opendoor, uh, traditional 
uh, investors are apprehensive about investing in these companies because of how uh, you know the assets are allocated and you know are they taking on risks related to a real estate market, for example, that could get them upside down. I think that those are very similar kind of, uh, they have a lot of similarities to some of the concerns that people had about Tesla and Amazon in the past decade. I I do I do have a th- question for you and I wanna kind of pivot a little bit because I saw there was an interesting comment you made. I wanna say it was last December and it was on a company called Jumia, which is the Amazon of Africa. Um, and, and this is kind of going on potential, futuristic. You're looking 10 years from now. Um, Africa's a very interesting market just because it's not very developed. And we we actually had a conversation a few months back trying to see if we could, you know, do a podcast with um, an, individual, an individual talking about Africa. And I want to get your thoughts on this because Jumia is a very interesting, not just Jumia on Jumia specifically, but Africa is a very interesting opportunity, I think, because I believe that it kind of reminds me of how India was 20, 30 years ago a little bit, where it was not very developed and you had certain population centers that you could see a lot of economic activity. Africa is really like that last spot that no one has really pioneered yet. So what are kind of your thoughts on not just Jumia, but that market? Do you think that it kind of, you know, is futuristic like, you know, Zillow and these other companies kind of are too. So I'm uh, I'm an investor, personal investor in Jumia. I'm I kind of take the the view this is just a company that I want to own for the next ten years, and and it's more about the opportunity uh, in Africa that kind of optimism around Jumia. It's less about maybe the specifics of their business model or uh, maybe you know someone uh, on their team or anything like that. It's just more. I believe in Africa, and I think that this is one way to invest in Africa is to own what I see as one of the leaders, probably one of the top two uh, e-commerce companies in the region. And if you think about Africa, it is uh, a juicy investment opportunity. It is, uh, I mean, it starts with the obvious uh, take that to want to explore investing in Africa, you need to have a contrarian mindset. It's something that uh, loop has, and we kind of embrace some people who generally don't want to go there. Uh, your commentary, I think, is unique. I think an average investor would say it's still a little bit too early to invest in Africa. There's been other uh, false starts in kind of an economic uh, renaissance in the region that haven't played out. And so uh, why now would be the question. And uh, it also is a region that has had uh, a lot of political instability and I think you kind of layer all those together and it, you have to have that contrarian mindset uh, to, to kind of step through the, 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 the door and, and look at the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is pretty straightforward, is you have a population right now that is not tech focused. Uh, it is uh, generally un, uh, not underbanked is an understatement. It's almost virtually no banking services. Uh, it's generally uh, cash is, is, is the primary mode of, of, uh, of commerce. And uh, it has all the same markings of what we saw in uh, Latin America when we did work on, for example, Mercado Libre and what we uh, did when we started doing work in our China coverage around uh, Alibaba, for example, and uh, 360 Buy, which became JD.com. All of those uh, very similar uh, kind of pattern recognition. So I would, I would say that, you know, that 10-year approach, 
Uh, I own Jumia. I purposely, I couldn't tell you what the stock closed at today. <laughs> I don't want to look at it because uh, it could be up uh, 10% a day or it could be down 10% a day. Yeah. I'm just going to probably look at it, try to look at it once a month and, and hope that it's moves in the right direction. It, it, it's interesting because as you said, you have to have a contrarian mindset. People will be like, oh, you know, why would you want to invest in, you know, Latin America, as you said, Mercado Libre, which has you know, exploded over the last several years. And then, you know, why would you want to invest in these things? I feel like emerging markets are kind of where most people now want to go because you're seeing like a lot of these, you know, big tech companies like Tesla, for one, that you're a huge fan of. I'm a huge fan of. I mean, they're at like $600 billion now. It's not the same as when you would invest when it was still, you know, the EV space was still very infant and people were doubting it. And so I feel like what's your take on emerging markets, I guess? Do you feel like it's perhaps the best opportunity right now compared to investing in U.S. markets? I do. I would point to uh, Loop has an, uh, we uh, license an index for an ETF, the ticker is LOUP. This is not a commercial to invest in LOUP, but I just want to- uh, kind of mention is that just about 40% of the companies that we have in that ETF are uh, outside of the U.S. in emerging markets. And so I think that it's, uh, it's they're, they're big opportunities. Uh, the, the other part, the reason why we like uh, making those investments is there's just a natural um, aversion, I think, for some U.S. investors not to do it because it really takes a lot of um, effort to fully understand uh, what the dynamics to these markets are. There's language barriers uh, you have to navigate. Uh, You don't want to be the uh, least smart person in the room and kind of uh, culturally not understanding what's going on. And so all these kind of barriers are something that we see as an opportunity to find great assets that are underpriced. And so I think that uh, emerging markets continue to be a big opportunity. uh, We have not done uh, uh, near the work that we should in India. Yeah. And, uh, if I think uh, we've spent more time, uh, thinking about Africa, I think that would be, if I was going to say kind of what's next for a loop for us to think about, it'd be India. What, what goes into making, and like you have the ETF, what goes into your decision process to put a name in there? At the most basic level, uh, there's about 30 companies with that are actually in the, the index. We have about we have a group of about 250 companies that kind of circle that that we consider targets to move in and out of that 30. Again, we license a, an index, but uh, to answer your question, what goes in it? The, the core is it's a frontier tech index. It's a frontier tech. It's basically themes around work and play, transportation, health, and retail. Those are our five kind of fundamental uh, pillars to it. And uh, frontier tech means by definition, everything that is changing. And just to, to answer your question is, yeah. uh, what goes into it? It's uh, revenue growth goes into it. That's okay. the, the key metric that we look for. What we've observed over the last 20 years is that, uh, for growth companies to be successful, they actually need to grow. And that when growth companies are not growing, uh, that is a sign. <laughs> a lot of people say this and that happened and therefore give them a, a pass uh, our view is that uh, don't stick around when a growth company is broke. Uh, uh, there's no such thing as a value stock when it comes to growth and and to move on. So we really overweight companies that are growing fast. What's now? I'm I'm kind of fascinated because it's very rare that you get to talk to someone that has an ETF on the New York Stock Exchange. What um, 
like what's the process? How how did you guys a first I guess build the ETF, but then get it onto the New York Stock Exchange? Because that had to have been a process in itself. There is. Uh, it, it was pretty easy for us. We uh, couldn't have had probably a more easy road. Is we have a partner called Innovator. Innovator was uh, founded by Bruce Bond, who kind of was the, the the father, if you will, of the concept of ETF. He had a company called PowerShares that he sold. Uh, and then uh, he started Innovator after his non-compete uh, came up. And Innovator just makes it really easy for us. So it's actually Innovator's ETF. They license a, an index from us. That's the mechanics of it. So thankfully is that Innovator does all the heavy lifting uh, for us. They uh, help with sales. They help with uh, kind of the administrative process of getting listed and uh, working, uh, making sure that from a legal standpoint, everything is airtight. And so we're, we're fortunate enough. For us, all we need to do is make very sure that we're picking the right companies. I think the performance has uh, shown that we've uh, we've done a good job of that, knock on wood. And uh, But that they've allowed us just to focus on what we love to do and they've taken care of the rest. That's that's awesome. And for all our listeners out here, um, in the description, I'll put more information about that in case you guys are interested in learning more about the ETF, um, learning more about what Loop does. I think it's fascinating. And I'm a big fan of Pioneer Tech. I think that's where you're going to really win in the long term. There's the, a lot of these companies now, it's like futuristic. You have to think what trends are coming. And this is exactly yeah, what you guys are doing. And so I think I, it's a very big you know, service to the public of you know, how you should appreciate think. that. There are, I would say there's, you know, definitely different styles of investing. There's value style. There's uh, kind of the way we think about it is you either need to invest in two types of companies. One is uh, companies that are kind of work uh, at the same pace. Uh, think about like Coca-Cola, for example, Procter & Gamble, Clorox, those type of companies. I think Apple's in that group. Uh, but also I think Apple kind of falls into a group of transformative companies, which is the, the second uh, 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 segment. And they're really, as you said, it's it's ways you, you kind of have to put your futuristic thinking hat on, uh, envision where the world is going to go, and then start to position around it. I'll give you an example. One quick example of it is, you know, the metaverse is something that has had uh, some hype. It's had some success in the equity markets with Roblox and to some extent Snapchat. But that's something that is kind of thinking about the future. Do you believe that, for example, that the Ready Player One future is going to be uh, a reality? Unfortunately, I I do believe that that is going to be a reality and that we will, will, will kind of drift in the decades to come into, um, it won't be as draconian as that, but just the concept of wanting immersive spaces to really be teleported and to have an identity. I, I would just kind of put another plug in for one of the uh, uh, partners at Loop, Doug Clinton. He's done a lot of work on this concept of identity and identity being the next macro theme over the next decade. We had search in the 2000s, uh, social in 2010, and this next decade, it's gonna be about identity. And it's not about your identity in the physical world, it's your, about your identity in the virtual world, in the metaverse, and and how you propagate that uh, identity is gonna be a massive investment opportunity. So, so you're saying like cybersecurity is where everything's going then, just to make sure that. Well, cybersecurity is important. Uh, I think just how you build your persona in a digital world is gonna be important. It, it, it impacts 
uh, everything from crypto and NFTs to um, how, how you distribute your voice online. Uh, it's it's no longer about the clothes that you wear and the car that you drive, but the the digital version of the car and clothes that you have. It's it's all of those. Uh, and then the security element, it's, it's all of those factors are uh, kind of collectively create this new ide- identity within the metaverse. You brought up crypto, and I feel like we have to talk about this because crypto, between Bitcoin, which is you know kind of taking a beating recently from Tesla saying that they won't supply or allow you to make purchases with them, to then saying once it's more efficient, you will be able to, to Dogecoin, you know, I've had countless friends go buy Dogecoin. I don't really know if it has any value or not, but there, there's never really been this kind of, like, in terms of investing, there's never really been this much passion. I feel like from just a novice person that you wouldn't think really cares so much, but then they do because they get hooked in by these sorts of things. And, mm-hmm. you know, Bitcoin can, and cryptocurrency can technically be under your, you know, visionary pioneering type tech. Sure. So what really, what's like your thought on Bitcoin, not just Bitcoin specifically, but I guess cryptocurrency. So crypto and NFTs put in a category of, we, we believe that they're real. Uh, that's a pretty ambiguous uh, outlook, but I do not think that this is a fad. I think that uh, you know, there was recently a, a crypto conference in Miami and the people that were attending that uh, were not your, this is not about people looking for Dogecoin and, and trying to do memes of Elon Musk. That wasn't the, the point of, of the, the gathering. I think they were like real investment, uh, I shouldn't say real investment professors. I'd say it's large pools of money, maybe said a different way, is taking a hard look at investing and really uh, believing longer term in uh, the structure around crypto and blockchain and, and NFTs. And so I think that uh, it is, uh, uh, it's, it's absolutely something that we uh, vector around. I, I'm going to hold off on talking about uh, how we're investing in yeah. it because we're taking a little bit of a contrarian uh, view to it uh, as a supporting the theme, but kind of approaching it for something that isn't is quite as obvious. Um, so, uh, I, I think it's it's, uh, it's here to stay. Term, it's worth it. Here to stay. I have no idea if if if, uh, if Bitcoin's going to be down thirty percent in the next week or up up forty <laughs> yeah. percent. I think that's part of the magic of this and the reason why it has that phenomenon that you talked about is really capturing people's attention. Is when they make a lot of money, it gets exciting and uh, understandable that it kind of draws that interest. I would I would very much. Uh, add to that just a healthy dose of uh, be careful. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and when I say be careful, not because I don't believe in this longer term, just because these swings can be quite violent. Isn't cryptocurrency kind of the thesis, though, to like Latin America and Africa? Because as you said, the governments are so unstable. It's really in order for those types of areas to compete on a global scale, you kind of need a cryptocurrency. That's kind of where I kind of come from. But at the same time, when you have companies like Tesla pulling cryptocurrency, it also makes you think like, how feasible is this? Because if it goes up 30%, what's the point of using it to buy a product? Yeah, the, the Tesla nuance there, you know, maybe something China related in there, maybe not. Uh, my guess is there probably was yeah. uh, something around that that kind of impacted that. But you're correct. I mean, Latin American uh, countries, uh, uh, El Salvador recently had an announcement about them 
making crypto uh, a, a form of crypto that is going to be mainstream in other Latin American company countries. I think Mexico also mm-hmm. made an announcement following the El Salvador announcement. So you're starting to see that, and that's exactly right. And it's um, you know kind of there's this uh, kind of sub theme around uh, crypto that is you know, down with the nations, down with the power of the governments and kind of make everything accessible to everybody. And uh, we shouldn't be having these punitive uh, uh, costs about moving assets around the world and monies around the world. And uh, I I think that, uh, you know, it's uh, understandable that those kind of, those feelings exist, but ultimately uh, that's, that's not the point here. I think the point is it's just more efficient. It's just a better way to, transact and uh it's more secure it's more efficient yeah can't can't say it enough times and so it's here to stay i i do have one more topic because i know i know gene you're extremely busy so one last thing i know the app apple had their worldwide developers conference um i know you're as tuned into apple as anyone is what were there like any key main takeaways that you came across or you came back with from there you know, if you just uh, kind of uh, uh, passively tune in to the keynote, I think you would be underwhelmed. I think that uh, there wouldn't be anything that was necessarily magical that came out of it. Uh, I think that if you uh, take uh, a step forward and kind of look at the context of what they're doing, I think there was some important takeaways about where things are going. And uh, I think from the highest level, they continue to tighten the connection between their products. And this is important because um, we are gonna obviously use more of these types of products in the future. And to the degree that they can work seamlessly together and co- and be work uh, easier together so we don't have to be tech experts to use them, yeah. I think that's a competitive advantage. And I think they continue to advance that with all their new operating systems. I think that there is other uh, kind of subtle uh, indications that it's it just important. Uh, another kind of piece uh, within uh, this last developer conference is something that Apple, uh, as well as other big tech companies need to navigate is developer relations. And uh, this kind of comes back to the Epic trial. They tried to address it in kind of a, a subtle way, but uh, I think that uh, Apple will ultimately maintain and, and retain these developers. And the reason why I mentioned that, that really is the core of the audience. For WWDC, it's about the geeks, it's about the developers, and uh, I think that they're in good uh, standing uh, more broadly with Apple. But uh, to really uh, get to the substance is that uh, what was the takeaway is we think that there's an innovation wave coming from Apple, and they're really setting up. And I think that what's going on around augmented reality, what's going around maps, some of the uh, small improvements they've had about capture for augmented reality, working with Unity, for example, it's also one of uh, Loop's uh, portfolio companies, uh, but uh, working with Unity for capturing assets for augmented reality, I think it does set up for a world that has uh, AR wearables in the future for Apple. Yeah. And second is something around transportation. And so uh, that's that, that was my takeaway is that there's an innovation storm coming. Don't be fooled by the mundane nature of WWDC. <laughs> Good stuff is coming. <laughs> well... That is a great high point to end this on. Um, there's a lot coming from Apple. There's a lot coming from all these companies. I'm excited to see, Gene, what happens in the next 10 years because I feel like this was a very futuristic podcast. I feel like we're you know, forecasting down the road to see what, what could happen. And 
it's really exciting. Um, Gene, thank you for the time. Um, Appreciate it. Yeah, it's it's been a pleasure, and uh, we are going to put all your links here on on the description. And um, a lot of people probably are going to be very interested to hear what you have to say through you know Loop and through the ETF and whatnot. And so uh, we'll do it again in a few months and uh, see what see what's happening in those next few months and uh, update everyone. Can't wait. All Thanks right, Gene. Yeah. Bye. Bye bye.